Bruce Nolan is standing by. Hey, Wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. The Buffalo Bills defeated the Tennessee Titans on Monday Night Football 41-7, getting to 2-0 and sending the AFC Titans to 0-0. And two, and like we always do on this podcast, we're going to talk about some narratives from the game and specifically one thing that someone asked me to look at. But before we get into that, I want to tell you a story. As some of you may know, we recently acquired the Nolan family, another dog, and his name is Drax, in addition to Boo and the big one. Now, it's very important that you note that I only ever give you the nicknames for the dogs. It's very important because you never know when the FBI is going to be listening that I only give you the nicknames for the dogs. His name isn't actually Boo. His name isn't actually the big one. So Drax is our new dog. And as you may know, if any of you have ever had a puppy, at the very beginning of his tenure with us, he hears the word no a lot. Because he's still trying to figure out what it is exactly that he's allowed to do and what he's not allowed to do. He hasn't been with us all that long. We usually follow the rule of threes, three days to calm down, three weeks to settle in, three months to be standard and normal. So Drax very likely thinks his last name is not Nolan, but no. Drax, no. Drax, no. Drax, don't do that. Drax, don't bite that. Drax, don't lick that. For a lot of dogs early on in their lives, they might think their last name is no. And once you start saying that so many times, you always run into a worry that perhaps the dog is not really going to wrap his head around no because it's so connected to his name that it has now lost all meaning. He thinks his name is Drexno at this point. So the word no isolated by itself doesn't mean anything because he thinks it's just part of his name. He never learned no absent Drax. That's kind of how I feel now when we talk about Josh Allen playing really well against the team. It's such a level of expectation now. This is what it's like to have a franchise quarterback. You just expect them to play well, that it becomes an outlier when he doesn't. It becomes notable when he doesn't play well, not notable when he does. So although we will frequently breeze over Josh Allen playing well in a game, Josh Allen lighting people up in a game, because it's systematic at this point, it's formulaic at this point, We need to take a step back for just a second and make sure we don't lose the no in the Drax. Two things that have become 
so connected with each other, but they are still two distinct concepts. Josh Allen playing a game and Josh Allen playing well in a game. We still need to recognize that he does it even as it becomes formulaic, even as it becomes expected. At the very beginning of Josh Allen's career, the metric that I used anecdotally to measure him was plays an average quarterback wouldn't likely make relative to the plays an average cornerback wouldn't likely miss. Because you knew you were going to get special plays that very few people can pull off. But if for every one special play, you miss three checkdowns, you miss three swing passes, that's still not a good ratio. We've long since put that ratio behind us. Josh Allen had maybe one play that he missed on Monday night that an average quarterback probably makes. And it was a pass out to the flat where he just dirted it. But those things happen so infrequently relative to the plays that he makes that are special or alien or ridiculous or weird or whatever positive adjective you'd like to use that essentially we don't really talk about it that much anymore. How many different ways can you say Josh Allen was awesome? I found myself sitting down when it was time to schedule this podcast and start my notes thinking to myself, what do you say? Victories like that are almost boring. They're not boring to watch, mind you. They're fun to watch. They're relaxing to watch. But they are kind of boring to talk about later. Because there's nothing to say aside from, yeah, we dominated. That's it. So I don't want the no to get lost in the dracks. I don't want us to irreparably combine Josh Allen and Josh Allen playing well. Because I feel like that leads to you not appreciating it. So we can acknowledge it, and we can also acknowledge that we might not talk about it that much the way we used to. Quarterbacks are never more under the microscope than they are when they're being analyzed for a potential position in that team's franchise quarterback slot. You never pay closer attention to what a girl is saying than the first couple of dates. Because there's auditions going on. You never pay as attention to what you're saying as the first couple of dates. Because you're auditioning. Josh Allen's not auditioning for the role of franchise quarterback. So he's not under the microscope as much anymore. He signed a massive deal. We expect him to be good. So on one hand, we can acknowledge those things and the position that goes along with it. And we can also acknowledge we're going to be far more critical on days when he's not. But I don't want to know to get lost in the dracks. I don't want Josh Allen plays well to be inseparable from Josh Allen plays, even though that's what we fully expect. So the big narrative that I want to talk about is something that specifically somebody asked me on Twitter, my opinion of, and I didn't have all the answers for them at that time, but I went and I got the answers. And that is, Bruce, what's Dorsey doing different than Dable? We understand the offense is successful, but why? How is it different 
than it was under Brian Dable for all those years. And so I wrote an article about it for buffalorumblings.com entitled, For Bills Dorsey, Variety Truly Is the Spice of Life. And we'll go over it here. I recognize right off the bat that two-game sample size is not significant. So let's start with that. But the Bills' offense has been very good. They're third in the NFL in offensive yards per game, fourth in passing yards per game, first in points, and seventh in offensive DVOA. So you say, okay, quantitatively, they're good. But qualitatively, what is it exactly that they're doing different? It's completely impossible to sum it up with one thing only because football is complicated. But I'd like to point out one specific thing that I think matters. And that is the diversity in terms of personnel groupings. Under Brian Dable, the Bills were predominantly an 11 personnel team, right? One running back, one tight end. In 2021, they ran 11 personnel 71% of the time. That was fifth in the NFL. In 2020, Again, 71%. That was sixth in the NFL at that time. In 2019, it was all the way down to 70%. One percentage point lower. Again, tied for sixth. Now, two of those three years, the Bills had a good offense. 2020, 2021. But it was in spite of their personnel diversity, not because of it. Now, the personnel grouping metrics have not been released yet for 2022. So I can't compare apples to apples, but through some individual player snap count analysis, we can see the emphasis on personnel grouping variety relative to previous years. Reggie Gilliam, fullback, played 14% of the offensive snaps in 2021. In 2022, through two games, that number is 29%. We have over doubled the usage of a fullback in the Buffalo Bills offense. Reggie Gilliam actually caught a pass and ran in for touchdown and was targeted on a deep pass and all the Pat DeMarco jokes showed up. Week one against the Los Angeles Rams, backup tight end Tommy Sweeney played 17% of the offensive snaps. Week two, Sweeney was out. Quentin Morris stepped in and played 41% of the snaps from scrimmage. That is more than the season-long snap count percentage of any Bills backup tight end during the Dable era and the third highest single-game snap percentage for a backup tight end since Sean McDermott took over in 2017. In 2021, the following nine Bills non-quarterback skill position players partook in more than 15% of offensive snaps. Stephon Diggs, Dawson Knox, Emmanuel Sanders, Devin Singletary, Cole Beasley, Gabriel Davis, Zach Moss, Tommy Sweeney, Isaiah McKenzie. Those nine players had 15% or more offensive snaps. In 2022, we already have 12 players. Knox, Diggs, Singletary, Kumaro, Davis, McKenzie, Gilliam, Crowder, Moss, Morris, Shakir, Cook. So you have three halfbacks, on your top 12, Singletary, Moss, Cook. Last year you had two. And you have a fullback on there, which you didn't have last time. And you have more receivers on there than you had last time. Now, I know what you're thinking. Gabriel Davis was hurt in active week two, Bruce. 
I understand that absolutely adds more snaps to the remainder of the wide receiver room. But it should be noted that Jake Kumaro had a 23.7 offensive snap count in week one prior to the ankle injury that Gabriel Davis sustained between weeks one and two. So he was going to be on there anyway. So even if you want to say Shakir wouldn't be on there, you'd still be higher. You'd still go from nine to 11. But also you got to consider James Cook didn't return to the week one game at against the Rams after his sole touch ended in a fumble. So that kind of offsets that anyway. But even though I don't have the 11, 12, 13, 21, 01 personnel usage, speaking of which, there's a fun trick. We saw 01 personnel usage. That was fun. One tight end, four receivers. Isaiah McKenzie was in the backfield. I don't recall ever seeing that from Dable. We saw that in a snap against the Titans. And the play was blown dead. They didn't run it. But you're seeing a lot of the same concepts. A lot of the same concepts are showing up in the past game. Things they like to run. You see those. But the personnel grouping is different. Ken Dorsey is throwing the kitchen sink at NFL defenses. And while I fully acknowledge that the diversity in personnel usage can increase the degree of difficulty for the offense because you're relying on more human beings. And the more human beings you're relying on, the more opportunity you have for human error. So it can lead to more common confusion. I get that. But it also appears to be at least a partial catalyst for offensive success. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We're going to hit some emails. David Summers says, Bruce, I've always been bored with coverage versus pass rush. Why? Doesn't matter. As your analogy about QBs solving geometry problems with bombs on their backs illustrates, a QB has an opportunity for the competition when he has the time to find a target before the pass rush sacks him or makes him throw it away. In other words, a reception opportunity happens when time to target is less than time to rush. Now, let's consider rush versus coverage debate in terms of this equation. Which term is more important? Of course, neither is. They both contribute equally. This sums up my view on the debate. Both are always equally important. Every second you reduce the time the QB has to find a target has a similar impact to every second you force the QB to use finding a target. Teams have had success with both approaches, and that will continue because they are two sides of the same coin. David, I can acknowledge that both are important. It's so difficult for me to come down on the side of equal. Think about how hard true equality really is. 50-50. Not 49-9, 50.1. Not 51 and 49. Not 55 and 45. Exactly 50-50. Think about how difficult that is in every single aspect of life. I don't think it's different here. And when you say pass rush versus coverage, I don't think it's really a debate over which one's more important. I think it's really a debate over which one benefits the other more. 
Let me tell you a riddle that was told to me a long time ago that I've always really enjoyed. Three men are on a trip and they stop at a hotel and the clerk up front tells them that it's $30 for the room. So they each pay $10 and they go up to the room. Later on, the clerk realizes he made a mistake and he sends the bellhop up to the room with five $1 bills because he realizes that the room was actually only $25. It wasn't 30. He gives five $1 bills to the bellhop and he says, hey, take this up to the room with the three men and give it to them because I made a mistake and it's actually only $25 for the room. So the bellhop's in the elevator and he says, hold on, I can't split five $1 bills evenly into three people. So he puts two in his pocket and gives one to each of the other men. So if they each paid $10 and they each got back $1, how much did they each really pay? Well, the answer is $9. They each paid $9. There's three men. Nine times three is 27. The bellhop has $2. That's 29. Where's the other dollar? That riddle was told to me at a pizza hut when I was very young by my father. And I sat there for a minute and I realized that I was starting to get stumped before I looked my father in the eyes and said, you tried to trick me. You were comparing apples to oranges. The reason why this riddle works is because at the end of the riddle, you were comparing a different thing than you were comparing at the beginning of the riddle. At the end of the riddle, you are taking money paid and added it to money present. At the beginning of the riddle, you were just having money present to money present. So the solution to the riddle is this. At the end of the riddle, how much does the clerk up front have? 25 bucks. How much do the men have? $3. How much does the bellhop have? $2. 25 plus 3 plus 2 equals 30. There is no missing dollar. There's no missing dollar at all. But the way it's worded forces you to end up $1 short. And I feel like that's how we look at pass rush versus coverage. Because we think about it like, okay, well, every second faster that we get to the quarterback is the same as one second faster that it takes him to acquire a target. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Because some quarterbacks are naturally able to hold the ball longer before release. There isn't necessarily a correlation between time to pass and sack percentage in the NFL. I'm working on a project right now that I think has a strong correlation where I'm trying to determine what percentage of a sack is a quarterback's fault. Because we all know that there are some quarterbacks who simply take more sacks. They just take more sacks. Pass rush is naturally going to be more effective against those quarterbacks because they hold the ball and they get sacked. There's some quarterbacks that no matter how much you pressure them, they don't get sacked that much. Josh Allen has extremely low pressure to sack percentage. It's really hard to sack him. Different quarterbacks respond different ways. So I don't think it's necessarily one second here is equal to one second there because I think it varies based on quarterback. And in today's society that we live in with the NFL current climate, 
more and more quarterbacks are getting better and better at eluding pressure. So I acknowledge the strength of pass rush. But when I put my flag in the ground and I said, hey, I think coverage is more important than pass rush, I did it because I thought that the evidence is there that coverage correlates more with better pass defense than pass rush correlates with better pass defense. The Buffalo Bills the last couple of years are a great example of that. The Buffalo Bills never had a significant sack percentage over the last couple of years, but were consistently top of the game when it came to pass defense, even though they weren't getting a lot of sacks. Now, this year, they could get both. They could have their cake and eat it too. But much like the riddle of the $30 in the hotel, I don't think that one second here is equal to one second there. I don't think that that necessarily always lines up especially since we have significant variance in quarterbacks and defensive personnel. David, thank you so much for that email. Thank you so much for allowing me to tell that riddle. I really always enjoy doing that. Evan says, I cannot wait until the Bills play the Dolphins. He sends me an email and he says, after all the back talking, all summer from his unruly kids, Miami's dad, Josh Allen, is going to go to the South Beach and he's not mad. He's just disappointed. He's going to lay a beating on the Dolphins, which will emotionally wreck all of South Beach. Miami does manage 13 points on offense, but it isn't enough to match the 455 touchdown performance by Josh Allen. Dorsey and McDermott finally limit his running game late in the game and just have him throw bombs while he's already up 28 to 13. AJ Epinesa, Breaks to his ribs again. Final score, 42-13 to after a late Shaq Lawson fumble, scoop, and score. We are on to Baltimore. You know, nobody last week said anything about the fact that we forgot plurality pie. I felt so dumb listening to that show that I did last week and saying, I forgot plurality pie. I got so out of the habit of doing it because, don't, of course, we don't do it in the offseason that I just forgot to do plurality pie. So for those of you who are uninitiated, wins are not a quarterback stat. One of the things I do every week to indicate that I know wins are not a quarterback stat is I assign plurality pie. If the win is a team game, sometimes you get different slice slices. Sometimes Sean McDermott gets a big old slice. Sometimes Josh Allen gets a big old slice. But everybody gets some. And so I would like to divvy out Plurality pie for the Bills' victory over the Tennessee Titans. Stephon Diggs, 32%. Stephon Diggs was the biggest reason why the Buffalo Bills beat the Tennessee Titans on Monday Night Football. Maybe his best game as a Buffalo Bill. He did it all. He beat man. He beat zone. He beat press. He beat off coverage. There is nothing that Stephon Diggs did not do and did not do successfully. Short passes, showed physicality, showed risk management. One of the things I've always admired about Stefan Diggs that I mentioned on social media during the game was he understands when it's one-on-one versus him and somebody else, make a move, try and be physical. But if you're surrounded by three guys, just go down. Please don't take the extra hits. One of the receivers who was able to significantly elongate his career by doing so was Marvin Harrison. Never took an unnecessary hit. I know that we all acknowledge 
think it's great when people run over people, and that's great. But picking and choosing your spots is really important. And Stefan Diggs recognizes that he's not the youngest player anymore, and if he wants to continue to grow old with Josh Allen, as he mentioned that he did, that you want to make sure you protect yourself. Stephon Diggs was completely unstoppable. Josh Allen, 29%. Had a couple balls here and there that weren't great. Started out maybe a little bit flat. Absolutely turned it on. Dominant play overall. Extremely good. As mentioned, boringly franchise-like from Josh Allen. Ken Dorsey, 70%. Wasn't a fan of the fourth down try, the play call. A little late getting things in. Offense looks a little out of sorts on that play. But overall, Ken Dorsey called a pretty good game. We talked about the personnel usage and how different it is this year than it was under Brian Dable. I'll take it. Tremaine Edmonds, 8%. Don't look now. Tremaine Edmonds is having the season that you thought he might have last year. Imagine that. When you get a better defensive line in front of somebody, they play better. That's fascinating. Tremaine Edmonds is every bit the freak that Derrick Henry is without 3,700 hits on his body. We talk about what a freak athlete Derrick Henry is. Tremaine Edmonds is that same thing as a linebacker. He played really well. I was happy to see that. Got some splash plays, shooting gaps, playing with authority, playing with physicality. Love it. Matt Milano, 7%. Pick six, shot gaps, took down Derrick Henry. Great sound tackling. The Bills linebackers were one of the keys to the game, and that's why they both end up on this list. Other, 7%. Everybody gets an other category. Get a catch-all beneath there. But the biggest pieces of plurality pie go to Stephon Diggs, Josh Allen, Ken Dorsey, Tremaine Edmonds, and Matt Mulatto. Ladies and gentlemen, we did it. We did all the things, and this time we remembered the plurality pie. And if you perhaps didn't like plurality pie or you don't like riddles, you don't like stories about dogs, then I guess this episode wasn't really for you. But, you know, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumblings.